flying with one of my kids recently. And, you know, I'm just not a big fan of flying. Like, you've got this multi-ton piece of metal that is supposed to go through the air at 500 miles an hour, 30,000 some odd feet. It just makes me a bit uncomfortable. But, you know, some of you enjoy this and some of you find your employment through this, so I am a fan of it for you and not me. But you go to this thing called a, a plane and you're a little uneasy and you're not crazy about it to begin with and how do they open up? How do they introduce themselves to you? Well, in the unlikely event that we crash into the water, your seat will help you float and keep your seat belt on like that's going to do something. But the one I always love, you know, if we just happen to lose cabin pressure at 30,000 feet and you can't breathe, your oxygen mask will fall down. And whether it inflates or not, don't worry, oxygen's coming through there. Make sure to put your mask on first and then turn to help the people that are with you. Well, we're going down. We've lost pressure. Things are not good. And a text like this reminds us, put your mask on. Make sure to take care of yourself. Make sure to take care of your heart with Jesus Christ. But then once that's secure, make sure you're turning to someone else and helping them put their mask on, helping them put on Jesus Christ for their own fight, their own struggle, their own walk with God. Take care of yourself, your own heart. But make sure you're not stopping with your own heart. You're turning to the people around you, and you're taking care of them as well. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 3 today. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And so, as we've talked about, the theme of Hebrews is simple. Jesus is better, so hold fast to your faith and press on to maturity. Jesus is better than anything you could turn back to, anything that you could drift from Jesus towards, anything that could be offered to you in this world. Jesus is better so hold tight to your faith in Jesus and press on to maturity in Jesus. So chapter one, Jesus is God. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the creator of God. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is enthroned as king. He is majestic as God. So pay really close attention to Jesus so you don't drift from Jesus. Chapter one. Chapter two Jesus is not only God, Jesus is human. And in order to become your high priest to represent you, he became a human to identify with you. And in becoming human to identify with you, he suffered, he bled, and he died for your sins to bring you back to God to identify with you so he could represent you. So, consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus with an intensity attached to it. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the apostle sent by God to represent God and speak for God to us, and the high priest who stands with us, identifies with us, and represents us back to God. Consider that. Consider Moses. He's faithful and he's awesome. Jesus is so much more faithful, so much more glorious, and so much more awesome. By the way, you're his temple. And since you're his temple, Hold on to him and then press back on the world with courage in Jesus. Don't let the world press in on you and collapse you. Don't let your troubles collapse you, but push back against it because of Jesus, because you've considered Jesus, because there's an intensity of your thought life towards Jesus. Chapter 2, 
And in chapter, or, or, or uh, in this passage, builds off of that. Therefore, it builds off of those truths of considering Jesus. And he quotes Psalm 95, or a portion of Psalm 95, 6 through 11, and then he preaches that warning to the church. There are believers in the past, or the people of God in the past, and they faced hardship, and it went really badly for them in their choices, and then it went really badly for them in God's consequences upon their choices. Remember that, so that you don't make the same choice with your today that they made with their today. And so listen uh, to Hebrews chapter 3 as he gives us this warning to stay alert, this warning to watch over our hearts, this warning to watch over each other so that we're not those who leave that original profession of faith, that leave that confidence in Jesus to go to something else. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil and an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of un belief. Let's pray. So Father, our hearts get so hard. The ground of our soul so stony and thorny and we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need the gospel of Jesus to plow it up. We desperately need the gospel of Jesus to make it good soil and not not hard soil in our hearts. We desperately need the grace of Jesus because we can justify anything in our lives. We can excuse anything in our lives. We can make anything okay. And we so desperately need the pursuing grace of Jesus, the whisper of the Holy Spirit, the living and active word to cut our hearts open and make them tender again. Start with my heart. Make it tender again. Start with our hearts here at Fletcher. Make our hearts tender again, good soil again. And help us to be people that go look after each other really well. Because we want each other's hearts to be tender to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Past examples warn us to watch over ourselves and each other. Past examples warn us to watch over ourselves and each other. 
First, because it's just too easy for our hearts to harden by sin's subtle deception. It's just too easy for our hearts to harden by sin's subtle deceptions. Um, I've noticed two things about people that work with their hands. The first thing I notice about people that work with their hands is when you shake their hand, you know it. It is a look you in the eye. It is a firm clasp grip. And you go in there and you're like, I, I don't want to be the guy, you know, that's caught short at the greeting time and you get that kind of half, like, oh, no, 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 we got to stop. We got to do that again. Like, that's not okay. And so, you know, I try to give a firm handshake. We should do that as men, by the way. That's a life pointer. As a man, try to give a good firm handshake when you meet people. But there's a difference when people... Second thing I've noticed about people that work with their hands is they, they have these calluses that have formed on their hands. Week after week and year after year of working with their hands and taking that layer of skin off and a new layer of skin growing back that's just a little bit thicker and a little bit tougher and a little bit less sensitive so that their hands are able to do their work without mine. Like I washed them too much in the cold last week and it's like they've blistered and are bleeding. Like God has made it where their hands just toughen up and don't have that same problem. And that's a great thing for hands that work hard. It's a really bad thing for hearts that are supposed to be connected to the Lord Jesus. Because our hearts grow calloused. You know, you, you can think back to a time probably in your life where you were closer to Jesus than you are today. Maybe when you first got saved, maybe there were some major awakenings in your life and there was this closeness to Jesus, this intimacy with Jesus that was part of it. And you were excited about Jesus and you loved Jesus. And then it just seems like Little sin after little sin creeps back in and compromise after compromise sneaks back in and drift after drift sneaks back in and all of a sudden you realize there is my relationship to Jesus has these layers that are less sensitive than they used to be that are more callous than they used to be. Or maybe it's not your whole relationship to Jesus but there's some areas of your life where neglect has taken place, or you just like your sin so much that you're going to keep it and then have the rest of your life work with Jesus, but we're going to have this area for ourselves, and what you've done is you've been able to form a callus in that area of your heart to where that area of your heart is not pricked by the voice of the Spirit anymore. That area of your heart and that area of your life no longer is convicted by the Word. It's no longer convicted by sermons. It's no longer convicted by study and by people, and it's just, just that area is off limits. Another area I noticed that we have calluses form is the people that we love the most, it seems easiest to let those relationships develop calluses. Like you're dating, you're thinking, this is the most amazing woman I've ever met in my life. I can't imagine a moment in my life where I wouldn't believe the thought, this is the most amazing person. And then you get engaged. You're like, this is amazing. I can spend the rest of my life with this person. This is the most amazing person. I can't imagine ever not loving her this amazing much. And then you get married. And life becomes very real. And that love has to become something deeper and more mature than it is if it's going to stay that way. But you find words that you would never say dating, all of a sudden you let them loose in your marriage house. And a harsh word doesn't convict you the way it used to convict you. Neglect and spending time away and just the busyness of the season of life. It just doesn't bother you anymore that this person that you can't imagine spending one minute apart from now that you let neglect and drift, drift into that relationship. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's a spouse or a relationship. Maybe it's a really close friend 
And you allow words or you allow choices or you allow a set of decisions to callous you to a person that your heart was once so tender towards. And it's so easy. You didn't make a conscious decision. I don't want to be near Jesus anymore. You didn't make a conscious decision. This area of my life belongs to me, Jesus, and you can have the rest. You didn't make a conscious decision. I am going to cool my relationship to this person that I love. Layer by unthought of layer by unthought of layer has formed up. And we're no longer sensitive to Jesus. We're no longer sensitive to certain areas of our life. Or we're no longer sensitive to people. And it's just too easy. And so we must daily guard our hearts. But we're missing something big if we stop with ourselves. And if we stay by ourselves. And we stay on the fringes and the edges. That's why we need each other so desperately. It's why we talk about microgroups. It's why we talk about being in Sunday school. It's why we talk about having relationships. Because somebody has to be close enough to see the blind spots that we either don't want people to see because we like them or because we don't see ourselves. And we need somebody close enough to see it and empowered enough to say something about it. Because our hearts harden so easily. Let's look at it in the text. Quick overview. It's this extended sermon of Psalm 95 that he quotes, and he uses the failure of the generation that he's pointing to to bring forward the failures of that generation and the consequences of that failure, the catastrophic consequences of that failure in that generation to bring forward to a warning to you and I, to the readers or the hearers of the book of Hebrews, to bring that warning forward to remind them, take care of this because there's a lot of danger and there is pain and consequences attached if you don't listen to warnings like this. And so in the one through six part, it's positively consider Jesus and hold fast to Jesus and be bold in Jesus. And then negatively, there is so much danger you open your life to if you choose not to take care of your heart and not consider Jesus. So look at it. Therefore, again, back to, Jesus, back to one through six, consider Jesus, fill your mind with Jesus intensely. And then notice how he quotes scripture. The Holy Spirit says. Right? And so... What is the author's view of the inspiration of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, but Scripture in general? What is the author's view of the inspiration of Scripture? When he quotes the Old Testament in something as uh, mundane as Psalms or pointing back to Exodus, it is God the Holy Spirit who spoke. It is God the Holy Spirit who wrote, and it was a human author. He views this high view of the inspiration of Scripture where to quote somebody who wrote the Old Testament is to quote God himself, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, and then he goes to Psalm 95, 6 through 11. I'm going to read the whole passage, 6 through 11, for you, um, just so you have some of the context. So, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Positive, right? Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, this positive engagement with God. For he is our God, and we're his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Positive, positive, positive. Worship the Lord. Warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation. They are a people who always go in astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." And so Psalm 95 is this call to worship. It's a new generation hearing the new voice, uh, new voice of God, not 
new voice, but like hearing the voice of God for themselves. It is being summoned to praise, being summoned to worship. And in that summons to worship, there's a reminder that those who don't worship end up like these hard-hearted people that are littered the past of our nation. And so you're sitting here as a worshiping psalmist forward here, and you're looking back and you're like, just like we do, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of opportunities with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miraculous works of God, and this is what they did with it. And so the psalmist is like, worship the God who did these things so you don't end up like the people who did these things. Today... If you hear his voice. And so there's two instances that are the background of Psalm 95. You can mark them in your notes. Exodus chapter 17, Numbers chapter 14. So Exodus chapter 17, Numbers chapter 14. So the first instance, Israel's in slavery. 400 years. Slavery to people that decided there's too many of you and they started murdering every male child that was born. That kind of slavery. God comes in. He visits his people again. He, through 10 miraculous supernatural plagues, wipes out Egypt for the most part, sets his people free, opens up a sea so that they walk through on dry land, and then closes that sea so that it drowns the Egyptian army, and they're set free. And so they're set free from slavery, they're redeemed, and they are now God's people. And then, you know, a couple of days, or weeks, I don't know how long, they're roaming through the desert, and the whining begins. Wah, wah, wah. You got us out of Egypt and now you're going to starve us to death in the desert? And before you laugh, Chris's septic tank was blocked up for like 18 hours. Wah, wah, wah. I can't shower with a hot shower. So they're walking through the desert. I mean, you know, it's so easy to look back and like, God, they're such complainers and not realize like this last week. How many times did I complain with a much easier circumstance. So, anyhow. They whine about the food, and then comes Exodus 17. You brought us out. In Egypt, we had all this food. In Egypt, we had everything we needed. Let's go back to Egypt, where they murder our children. And then, they get some food. God bakes bread for them every day. His angels bake bread for them every day, called manna. And then, way, way, way. We don't have any water. You brought us in the desert to kill us. You are just going to kill us right here. Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? We could have died there just as easily without all the heat. And God has Moses strike a rock, and water flows out of a rock, and they have all the water they need. And the place is called Meribah, because they quarreled with God and put God to the test there. Background one Attached to the major redemptive events of the Exodus. Background two, Numbers 14. So they trot along and they have their manna and they have their water. And now they're going to the place of promise. And God says, there's going to be a land flowing with milk. Yay, milk. There's a land flowing with honey. Yay, honey. There's a land with these massive clusters of grapes. Yay, grapes. There's a land where houses are already built and you just get to move into them. Yay, houses. And so they send these 12 spies into the land, and the 12 spies come back, and they're like, there's milk, yay milk, there's honey, yay honey. It took two of us to carry this cluster of grapes back. That's how big the grapes are here, yay grapes. But 10 of them say, these people are giants, and there's way too many of them, and they're going to wipe us out if we try to take this land. Boo, new land. It's everything God promised, 
But there's people. And so, Moses, you're gone. We're going to get a new leader, and he's going to march us right back to Egypt where they kill our children. Because it's better there. You just want us to die? What in the world? And God says, how long will they despise me? Think that I'm smaller than I am. And how long will they not believe me? So all of their choices and all their rebellion and all their sin didn't come down to they refused to enter land. It came down to they refused to believe their God. And so that's the background. That's the challenge. That is what is being faced here. Now, here's a connection I want you to form. In verse 9, they saw my works. They saw. They saw hail kill the Egyptian cows and not theirs. They saw disease kill the Egyptian livestock and people and not them. They saw um, flies and frogs in the Egyptian houses and not theirs. They saw darkness in in the land of Egypt and not theirs. And they saw the death of the firstborn as a retribution for the death of their firstborn. And not theirs. They saw the work of God, but look at this connection. The end of verse 10. They have not known my ways. They have seen the works of God, but they never knew God. And to me, that's one of the greatest dangers of us sitting here in this church week in and week out, or growing up in this church, or growing up in a church. The greatest danger is that we see the works of God. We learn about God. We like the stuff of God, like getting together with each other and the friendships and and some halfway decent music and and preaching that doesn't put you to sleep every week. And like, yeah, we, we like the stuff of God. We see the stuff of God. But we never truly and deeply know God is the greatest danger and trap of all the religious stuff that goes with it. And it's wonderful stuff. It is good gifts that God's given us. But we see without knowing. We see, but it never gets into our hearts with any depth. And that's the greatest danger. And so what does he say? What does he say? He says with a repeated refrain, today, 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 today. Over and over again, today, you look back at the generation who made these decisions in Exodus and made these decisions in Numbers, and they had a today, they had a lifespan, they had a moment with God, a a season with God, and they utterly squandered their time with God. And then you trace, because today was given to generation after generation after generation, today, today, today. And some of them took their today and they did something with it. The conquest generation did all right. Some of the kings took their today and made massive reforms to return people to God. Some of the prophets had massive success to bring people back to God. Their today was was not wasted, it was fully used Followed by a generation whose today was wasted and today took them away from God and today was used to not be faithful to God. And what the author is saying and what the author is pressing on you and pressing on me is this. What will you do with your today? Because you can choose with your today to harden your hearts like they harden their hearts. To not live in faith like they didn't live in faith. You can choose to squander your today. 
Or you can choose to apply your today to running after Jesus, to apply your today to keeping your heart tender before the Lord, to apply your today to lead others to do the same. What will you do with your today? And I was thinking about it. the word today is filled with hope. I don't care if you hardened your heart yesterday, you got today. I don't care if you drifted yesterday, you have today. I don't care if you failed yesterday, you have today. Today is so filled with hope and promise because it's a present thing that can be walked in as opposed to a past thing that we can't do anything about. Today is filled with hope. Today is filled with promise. Anything could happen today. What's already happened has happened yesterday. Have no clue what will happen next. Today, it's filled with hope. Today is also filled with urgency, isn't it? Because if it's today, it means there's going to be a time where there's no more today. Maybe it's the end of your life. It can be cut really short, and today's over. And Jesus says, the night comes when no one can work. Maybe it's the end of your life after a long life. Maybe it's the return of Jesus. There's coming a time where your today will end. And so it puts an urgency on your decisions and an urgency on your pursuit because there's a today, but there won't always be. I know it's easy to think that way when you're young. I mean, I still look in the mirror sometimes and think, no, no, not me. I still look on Facebook at the people I graduated high school with and like, Man, those people got old. What in the world? And then I stay away from the mirror so I don't connect the dots that I'm the same age as them. God, that was today, yesterday to us. Today goes so quick. And and you're like, yeah, right. No, it does. It does. There won't always be a today. There's an urgency. And then with, with today, the last word I would say, with today, there's a warning. I believe with all my heart there's a time that God offers his last offer of grace to people. The last offer of repentance. The last offer to turn back. The last offer to be saved. And so you can sit here and hear the gospel right now. Please hear his voice and don't harden your heart as in the day of the rebellion. Hear his voice and don't harden your heart against the call of Jesus to recognize your sin, to recognize his son and turn from your sin to his son. Don't don't harden your heart to that invitation anymore because I am firmly convinced there will be a day where God says, I take that as your final answer and you will never receive another gracious invitation to salvation. I believe that will happen. And your no, you may have 30 more years, but your no is the last no, and he will never visit you again to make that offer to you today. That's what happened to, what was it, Festus that Paul would talk to? You almost have me there. Oh, I wish, I wish you'd go past almost. Because the record indicates that it was almost, and then Paul was gone, and there's no record of anything after that for him. Almost. Oh, yeah, I was a little bit moved during that sermon. Oh, and that friend sat down with me. Today, you're not promised tomorrow. Would you be warned about today? But not just warned about today in salvation. I also believe there will be a time where God quits dealing with you as a believer in the sense of you coming back out of what area, and he will let you harden and lock in concrete in the choices and the separation you've had. You know, it talks about it, that there are people that aren't alive anymore because they messed around with the Lord's Supper. There's people that God shut the door of their life because they lied to the Holy Spirit. 
And I think he still does that. And so today, it's filled with hope. Hear the message of hope. But it's also filled with warning. And this passage doesn't let us escape the warning. Now, if you're looking at your watches, don't worry. I only plan to preach one of these points mainly and just kind of hit the second. It's all in the the map, so don't, don't worry. Today, if you hear his heart. Now look, he gets into the, to the present, or into the commands to us. Take care. Take care. It's the word that means to see. It's basic sight. But then, kind of, uh, the deeper meaning of it is it's the word that means to weigh something carefully. So what is it we're to take care of? What is it that we're to weigh carefully? Look at the rest of the verse. Lest you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Take care of your heart. Because if you don't tend your heart like a garden, and I don't mean your hobby garden in the backyard where it's nice to get a little bit of corn or it's nice to get a watermelon or two and maybe you can take it to a friend. I mean, this is the garden you're going to live off of or die if it doesn't produce. Take care of your heart like a garden that is essential for your salvation. Take care. And so it's this positive command to tend to your own heart. It's this positive command. Like, you know, it's coming up on weed and feed time. If you didn't know that for your grass and you get some weed and feed. It's coming up on that time where you're supposed to throw out this weed killer and you're supposed to do it the right way and it's supposed to kill these, th- these weeds up at the root and it's supposed to feed the good parts of your grass so it gets strong. And that's a great analogy for what it means to tend to the garden of our own hearts is there is sin that grows and grows and grows. Weed, weed, weed. Am I actively walking through the process of bringing grace to bear on it through confession and repentance and receiving the forgiveness and the cleansing of God, weeding my own heart over and over and over again? And you will never get to stop that. Take care. Tend the garden of your heart. Weed. Tend the garden of your heart. Don't just stop it. Confessing positively plant the seeds of the gospel into your heart, the seeds of righteousness into your heart, the seeds of grace into your heart. Positively cultivate the soil of your heart so that it's good and it's not hard and and, and it's not um, stubborn and stony. Cultivate the soil of your heart. Fertilize the soil of your heart. Plant the seeds of the goodness of God in your heart. So you're weeding and you're feeding and you're weeding and you're feeding. Take care that you tend your heart. Why? Proverbs 4.23 says it. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Because from it flow all the issues of life. All the issues of your life come from this thing called your heart. And it matters far more in almost every circumstance of your life. It matters far more what's going on inside of you than what is happening around you. And what's happening around you, you have almost no control over. And what's happening within you, you have massive control over if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Keep your heart, because your heart is so prone to evil. It's so prone to unbelief. It's the default posture. And so positively tend your heart, or negatively, your heart will go somewhere, and it will harden somewhere that you don't want it to be. And exhort one another. Every day, as long as it's today. Exhort one another. It's a, it, that's a word that is positive. It's helping people move forward. And it either means encouragement, which is positive. Hey, hope in the Lord, right? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in the Lord, for I will yet praise him. It's encouragement. It's pressing people forward. Don't grow weary in doing good, because you'll reap in due season. If you don't lose heart, encourage, keep going. Your labor in the, vein, it's, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Keep going, keep going. That's encouragement. 
But sometimes the positive encouragement of exhortation is also the difficult conversations of confrontation because the word can also mean to admonish. And in any given circumstance, how do I push you forward with positive hope in the Lord? How do I push you forward with a good swift kick to the butt? And make those things come together in the grace of God so that the right word that's fitting in in right season is given from me to you and you to me. And knowing which one you need and giving you that word. Not heaping, crushing on top of a soul that's crushed, but breathing life into a soul that's withered. And sometimes you just got a heart that's so hard that it needs to be popped a little bit and pushed forward, like, go, that way, right? And so, exhort one another when you're in church. Exhort one another the hour the pastor preaches. Exhort one another in Sunday school. No. Exhort one another every single day of your life, which is a... The Christian idea is the idea of life-on-life discipleship, life-on-life togetherness. There is no such thing as a Christian who pops into church and disappears for seven days and pops back. Like that, you, you don't find that in this book. Every day, thorns grow up in my heart. Every day, the soil of my heart gets harder. Every day, I need people around me speaking the goodness of Jesus to encourage me, and the goodness of Jesus to push me forward. And if I don't, what's going to happen? Lest you fall away from the living God? Now, I don't believe that means apostasy, that you can lose your salvation. We'll talk about that more in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. But for now, I don't believe this passage is talking about falling away and losing your salvation. I think it's talking about acts of rebellion and disobedience that produce judgment and consequences in our life. Now, I will say this. If you think that you can sustain a pattern of sin in your life, and if you think that rebellion can mark the ongoing pattern of your life, and if you think that you can do that somewhat with impunity, then there is great danger to you believe, to the truth whether you're saved or not. You need to hear that. If you can live a life of rebellion and a life of sin unfazed, then you should have serious question marks of whether your salvation was ever genuine in the first place. I would say that is a warning. And then at the very least, if you can live that way, maybe you are saved, you should have huge question marks and red flags. And so potentially it shows you're lost, and if it doesn't show you're lost, it should raise huge question marks in your heart to where you don't live with an assurance and a certainty. Like read 1 John. It doesn't want you to have a certainty that's not attached to the change in your life that's attached to Jesus. I don't think it's saying lose your salvation. That is, that is the extreme case. I think what it's saying is that, the, that there's this warning of consequences that come if you choose to live this way. Right? And so exhort one another so you don't fall away. Exhort one another so you don't become hardened, so that your heart doesn't become calloused towards sin. And I think what I would say to that is God doesn't play with sin because he sent his son on the cross. And I think we treat it that way sometimes, don't we? Like, oh, there's Jesus. I'll kind of live how I want and, you know, do a couple of these things and my sin's gone. Like, I'll make this choice, but it's okay. Like, almost this Catholic notion of, of the rosary beads. We don't use the rosary beads, but we use the same mentality. I can play with sin and then do some ritual and my sin goes away. 
God is so serious about sin that he killed his son on a cross for it. And if you think he's playing with it now after the death of his son, less, more than, playing with it more now than he did before the death of his son, you've missed something about this thing called the gospel. The beautiful thing is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The warning is, don't think that means you get to play with sin like it doesn't matter. It is so deadly serious that it took the death of his son to take care of it. And we should treat it with that kind of weight and have that kind of worship and hope because there's a remedy now that wasn't available then and run to that remedy as opposed to keep our sin. And then he closes with, you're a sharing in Christ if you hold fast. And so what I would say, the simplest statement on this is, your perseverance does not earn your salvation. You share Christ. Verse 6, you're the house of Christ. You belong to him. You're his temple. Perseverance doesn't earn your salvation. Perseverance displays the reality of your salvation. Does that make sense? Right? And so I, I'm not earning my salvation by not quitting on Jesus. God has saved me. God has placed his spirit in me. God has placed me in a community. He's given me everything I need to press on. And when I press on, I'm just saying it's real what Jesus did. It's real what Jesus did. It's real what Jesus did. He's holding me. I'm not holding tight enough to him. I can't. But the fact that I keep holding on and that I keep going just shows he's holding me. That's perseverance. It simply says what God did was real, not look how strong I am to keep going. Calloused hearts are dangerous, and so what areas of your heart and your life have become calloused? What area of your relationships have you let become calloused? You share in Jesus. You're the house and temple of Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. The second point, again, we're not going to jump into it much. Unbelief is always the root of disobedience, and it comes with consequences. Unbelief is always the root of disobedience, and it comes with confidence. I'm a fan of Vikings, the TV show. Like history, it's like some history and some made up stuff. And, but, like, it goes into their worship practices a little bit. And it's, I mean, it's repulsive. It's death, it's human sacrifice, it's painted like death. There is zero temptation in Chris to go get a totem pole in his backyard and worship Odin. No temptation whatsoever. I'm not thinking about jumping ship. Sitting in TJ Maxx and the line, you know, the lines are long these days. And so I'm sitting there in that aisle, and I look over, and it's the essential oil aisle, diffusers. They want you to buy that as like this uh, spontaneous thing on the way out. And one of them had the head of Buddha or the head of Shiva. And so I can have the little bitty head of Buddha sitting on my table, putting essential oil in the air, making me live really well, right? Be happy, be relaxed. Can have my bones healed? I mean, all kinds of stuff this stuff will do for me. There's zero temptation for Chris to put the head of Shiva in his house and like, man, yeah. Send me with a gift card to Lowe's, though. Send you with a gift card to Lulu. And all of a sudden, the excitement of your heart and the attachment of your heart reach out. Our idols aren't Shiva heads and totem poles. They're 60-inch boxes with moving screens and they're designer brands. They're more civilized. They're there. For me to sin, I have to believe something wrong about God. For me to sin, 
I have to have put my faith in something else that we call an idol. Look at the text as it, as it closes up. It's the warning part. Today, don't harden your heart. Today, don't harden your heart. Today, you boneheaded people, don't harden your heart. We've been doing it for thousands of years, but you don't do it. You don't do it. I know it's hard. Don't harden your heart. I know it's hard. Don't quit. I know it's hard. Don't leave Jesus. Who was he mad at? Everybody that heard and rebelled. Who was he provoked with? Those who sinned and their bodies littered the desert over, over a 40-year period as one by one they aged and died out of this world. Who was it that, that he was provoked with? Those who were disobedient. Everybody that went out with Moses. That's who we're talking about here. But what's the diagnosis of the author? What's the diagnosis of rebellious sinners who disobey? You would expect him to say, you see, I've proven the point in the last verse. I've proven the point. You're all rebellious. No. What's the diagnosis? Rebellious, sinner, disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their rebellion? No. We see they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. You will never rebel if you believe what is true about God actively in your heart and mind. You will never sin if you actively believe what is true about God in your heart and mind. You will never be disobedient if you actively and in living ways remember God, remember his goodness, remember who he is, remember his gospel, remember his cross. As long as that is burned in your mind, sin won't be there. It's when we quit believing And the only way we quit believing is we believe something else. I believe, I think the offer is God is I will give you life. I'll give you life abundantly in my presence is the fullness of joy. That's God's offer to you. What's sin's offer? I'll give you life, satisfaction. I'll give you abundance, you'll be fulfilled. I'll give you joy, all the pleasure you can stand. And these two offers face us thousands and thousands of times a day as my thoughts, words, and actions either operate in faith to believe that God is all that he said and he's enough or they operate in unbelief that something else is better. And that something else is sin because I think it's better for me than God. It is all back to this root operating system of do I operate in faith? Do I operate in unbelief? What controls my heart? And for those who choose to operate in unbelief, God in his wrath swears, you will not have my rest. In this case, the rest is the land of promise, not eternal salvation or not salvation. It's the land of promise. Their consequence is they don't get to rest in a land of their own. They wander till they die. There's a consequence to their disobedience, and it's not talking about eternal consequences here. And for the Christian, there's consequences to your disobedience. There's hardness of heart, there's bitterness, there's stress and frustration, there's, there's um, discipline because he loves you too much not to discipline you. Discipline sucks. It, it's awful. Doing it to your kids and having it done to you, awful to be disciplined. But God loves us too much to let us keep going the way of destruction and so he disciplines us. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you choose unbelief expressed in rebellion and sin, 
He will discipline you. He loves you too much not to. If you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you will not enter his rest in this eternity called heaven. You will spend eternity in a place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's Jesus' words, not mine. And is that somber a warning that he is giving to them? It's that somber a warning. Unbelief brings consequences. Take care of your heart so that you don't become an unbeliever in areas of your life. A few practical things. We'll wrap up. First, what areas of your life and relationships do you see calluses? What areas of your life and relationships do you see calluses? The good news of the gospel is this. I don't have to hide from that stuff. If there were no Jesus and if there were no cross, I would have to pretend like they don't exist because I couldn't live with it. I couldn't do anything about it. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus lived, died, rose again to pour his blood over you and to wash you whiter than snow so that you can see all of the horrors of your heart, acknowledge they're as bad as God says they are, and then find the cleansing, restoring work of Jesus over those areas of your life. And so what areas of your life need Jesus to revisit because you've shut him out? Need Jesus to revisit because you've become desensitized to the voice of the word and the spirit of God? Second, how can you more carefully tend to your own heart? How can you more carefully tend to your own heart? And so on the negative side, actively, search me, God, and know me and see if there's any wicked way in within me. Create in me a clean heart, God. Right? There's this process of looking for these things, finding these things in our life, and yanking them out by the roots with the gospel. But positively, how do you begin to plant what is healthy? Like the, the best way to have a healthy lawn is to have a healthy lawn. It's not to worry about the weeds as much. It's to make sure the healthy stuff stays healthy so there's not as much room for the unhealthy stuff. And so how do you just plant goodness and righteousness and gospel and grace and and and, and Habits that are conducive, like how do you do that? And how do you place yourself in community uh, more consistently? And how do you invite people to look more consistently? If you want to tend your own heart well, yes, there's some negative work of weeding that has to take place. But if you want to tend your own heart well, the more you sow the goodness of, of God, of his word, of his gospel, and of his church into your life, the more you'll find that other stuff just doesn't have as much access as it used to. Third, how can you encourage others to purity and faithfulness? We've become way too comfortable putting on our own Jesus masks while the people around us gasp for air. We've become way too comfortable making sure I'm covered while the people around us are are dying, while the people around us are suffocating, while the people around us are being choked out. And we've got to quit being comfortable with that. We've got to quit being okay with being okay if somebody around me isn't. So I want to tend my own heart, but I want to tend my own heart in part because I want to be free to go, not, you know, spec evaluation of you, but I want to be free so that I can go walk into your life and help exhort you, help encourage you, help you move forward. And don't worry, I'm not nearly strong enough that I'm not going to need you the next time. How can you encourage somebody around you very practically and very tangibly to purity and faithfulness? Dangers are everywhere. Dangers are everywhere. Don't you dare think that this is a solo project, every man for himself project. Tend your own heart, 
Go look after the people that are around you. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we bow. And only because of the name of Jesus can we bow. Only because of the name of Jesus do we have access to this throne of grace that's in front of us. And it's not a throne of condemnation where the king declares our our judgment. It's a throne of grace where the king welcomes us. God, only because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God, by the holy word that he spoke and wrote, that he would go and challenge each of our hearts today. Today, God, and I pray we would hear it, him, today. And I pray we would be convicted today, and I pray we'd be awakened from death to life today. There'd be people in this room that go from death to life by the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit today. And they wouldn't put it off. And I pray for us, your people, God, today we would take care of our hearts. Today we would repent of the unbelief that's so rampant. Today we would repent of the hardness and the callousness of our hearts. While it's today, we wouldn't wait. We wouldn't wait for the other person to do it. We would do it. Father, pray for that power through the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation today, the only promise that you have in this life is right now today. And that's not to guilt you or scare you into coming to faith in Christ, but I do want to warn you with the warning of Scripture today if you hear His voice. There is no promise that you get to hear it again tomorrow. There's no promise you get to hear it again next week. You may hear these words again next week, and there's no promise that your soul will ever hear them again. Today, hear. Today, feel the conviction of your sin. Today, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. Maybe what you see, though, in your heart is there's that little bit of creep, that little bit of callous that wasn't there before, but it is there now. That neglect of God has has become bigger in your life. And you want to come humble yourself up here, bow up here, confess that up here. Do it. Do it. Maybe the prayer you need to offer today is, God, search me and try me. See if there's any wicked way. Maybe the prayer you need to pray today is, God, created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want to be clean again, but I also want to be steadfast again to keep going. I don't want to quit. I want to keep going this time. You can do that here. We invite you. Let's stand. Let's sing together. And you respond how the Lord is leading you.